Section one of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section one being disappointed in my hopes of meeting johnson this year so that i could hear none of his admirable sayings i shall compensate for this want by inserting a collection of them for which i am indebted to my worthy friend mr langton whose kind communications have been separately interwoven in many parts of this work footnote nothing can compensate for this want this year of all years johnson's health was better than it had been for long and his mind happier perhaps than it had ever been the knowledge that in his lives of the poets he had done and was doing good work no doubt was very cheering to him at no time had he gone more into society and at no time does he seem to have enjoyed it with greater relish how do you think i live he wrote on april the twenty fifth on thursday i dined with hamilton and went thence to mrs ord on friday with much company at reynolds's on saturday at dr bell's on sunday at dr burney's at night came mrs ord mr greville etc on monday with reynolds at night with Lady Lucan, today with Mr. Langton, tomorrow with the Bishop of St. Asaph, on Thursday with Mr. Bowles, Friday blank, Saturday at the Academy, Sunday with Mr. Ramsay. On May the 1st he wrote, At Mrs. Ord's, I met one Mrs. B. Buller, a travelled lady of great spirit and some consciousness of her own abilities we had a contest of gallantry an hour long so much to the diversion of the company that at ramsay's last night in a crowded room they would have pitted us again there were smelt one of the king's favourites and the bishop of st asaph who comes to every place and Lord Monboddo, and Sir Joshua, and ladies out of tale. The account that Langton gives of the famous evening at Mrs. Vesey's, when the company began to collect round Johnson till they became not less than four, if not five deep, is lively enough, but the particulars of the conversation, which he neglects, Boswell would have given us in full. End of footnote. Very few articles of this collection were committed to writing by himself, he not having that habit which he regrets, and which those who know the numerous opportunities he had of gathering the rich fruits of Johnsonian wit and wisdom must ever regret. I, however, found in conversations with him that a good store of Johnsoniana treasured in his mind footnote 
1792, Miss Burney, after recording that Boswell told some of his Johnsonian stories, continues, Mr. Langton told some stories in imitation of Dr. Johnson, but they became him less than Mr. Boswell, and only reminded me of what Dr. Johnson himself once said to me. Every man has some time in his life an ambition to be a wag. End of footnote. And I compared it to Herculaneum, or some old Roman field, which, when dug, fully rewards the labour employed. The authenticity of every article is unquestionable, for the expression, I, who wrote them down in his presence, am partly answerable. Theocritus is not deserving of very high respect as a writer. As to the pastoral part, Virgil is very evidently superior. He wrote when there had been a larger influx of knowledge into the world than when Theocritus lived. Theocritus does not abound in description, though living in a beautiful country. The manners painted are coarse and gross. Virgil has much more description, more sentiment, more of nature, and more of art. Some of the most excellent parts of Theocritus are where Castor and Pollux, going with the other Argonauts, land on the Babrician coast, and there fall into a dispute with Amyces, the king of that country, which is as well conducted as Euripides could have done it, and the battle is well related. Afterwards they carry off a woman whose two brothers come to recover her and expostulate with Castor and Pollux on their injustice, but they pay no regard to the brothers, and a battle ensues where Castor and his brother are triumphant. Theocritus seems not to have seen that the brothers have the advantage in their argument over his Argonaut heroes. The Sicilian Gossips is a piece of merit. Callimachus is a writer of little excellence. The chief thing to be learned from him is his account of rites and mythology, which, though desirable to be known for the sake of understanding other parts of ancient authors, is the least pleasing or valuable part of their writings. Mater's account of the Stefani is a heavy book. He seems to have been a puzzle-headed man, with a large share of scholarship, but with little geometry or logic in his head, without method, and possessed of little genius. He wrote Latin verses from time to time, and published a set in his old age, which he called Senilia, in which he shows so little learning or taste in writing as to make Carteret a dactyl. Senilia was published in 1742. The line to which Johnson refers is Mel nervos fulgor Carteret unus habes, page 101. In another line, the poet celebrates Colly Kibber's muse, the Musa Kiberi. Multa ciberum levat aura, 
In matters of genealogy it is necessary to give the bare names as they are, but in poetry and in prose of any elegance in the writing they require to have inflection given to them. His book of the dialects is a sad heap of confusion. The only way to write on them is to tabulate them, with notes added at the bottom of the page and references. It may be questioned whether there is not some mistake as to the methods of employing the poor, seemingly on the supposition that there is a certain portion of work left undone for want of persons to do it. But if that is otherwise, and all the materials we have are actually worked up, or all the manufactures we can use or dispose of are already executed, then what is given to the poor, who are to be set at work, must be taken from some who now have it. As time must be taken for learning, according to Sir William Petty's observation, a certain part of those very materials that, as it is, are properly worked up, must be spoiled by the unskilfulness of novices. We may apply to well-meaning but misjudging persons, in particulars of this nature, what Giannone said to a monk who wanted to what he called convert him. Tu sei santo, ma tu non sei filosofo. It is an unhappy circumstance that one might give away five hundred pounds in a year to those that importune in the streets and not do any good. Footnote. Giannone, an Italian historian born 1676, died 1748. When he published his History of the Kingdom of Naples, a friend, congratulating him on its success, said, Mon ami, vous vous êtes mis une couronne sur la tête, mais une couronne d'épines. His attacks on the church led to persecution. In the end he made a retraction, but nevertheless he died in prison. End of footnote. There is nothing more likely to betray a man into absurdity than condescension when he seems to suppose his understanding too powerful for his company. Footnote. There is no kind of impertinence more justly censurable than his who is always labouring to level thoughts to intellects higher than his own, who apologises for every word which his own narrowness of converse inclines him to think unusual, keeps the exuberance of his faculties under visible restraint, is solicitous to anticipate inquiries by needless explanations, and endeavours to shade his own abilities, lest weak eyes shall be dazzled with their lustre. End of footnote. Having asked Mr. Langton if his father and mother had sat for their pictures, which he thought it right for each generation of a family to do, and being told they had opposed it, he said, Sir, among the anfractuosities of the human mind, I know not if it may not be one that there is a superstitious reluctance to sit for a picture. Footnote. 
Johnson, in his dictionary, defines anfractuosness as fulness of windings and turnings. Anfractuosity is not given. Lord Macaulay, in the last sentence of his biography of Johnson, alludes to this passage. End of footnote. John Gilbert Cooper related that soon after the publication of his dictionary, Garrick, being asked by Johnson what people said of it, told him that among other animadversions, it was objected that he cited authorities which were beneath the dignity of such a work, and mentioned Richardson. Nay, said Johnson, I have done worse than that. I have cited thee, David. Footnote. My purpose was to admit no testimony of living authors, that I might not be misled by partiality, and that none of my contemporaries might have reason to complain, nor have I departed from this resolution. But when some performance of uncommon excellence excited my veneration, when my memory supplied me from late books with an example that was wanting, or when my heart in the tenderness of friendship, solicited admission for a favourite name. He cites himself under important, Mrs. Lennox under talent, Garrick under giggler. From Richardson's Clarissa he makes frequent quotations. In the fourth edition, published in 1773, he often quotes Reynolds, for instance, under vulgarism, which word is not in the previous editions. Beatty he quotes under weak, and Gray under bosom. He introduces also many quotations from Law and Young. In the earlier editions, in his quotations from Clarissa, he very rarely gives the author's name. In the fourth edition I have found it rarely omitted. End of footnote. Talking of expense, he observed, with what munificence a great merchant will spend his money, both from his having it at command and from his enlarged views by calculation of a good effect upon the whole. Whereas, said he, you will hardly ever find a country gentleman who is not a good deal disconcerted at an unexpected occasion for his being obliged to lay out ten pounds. Footnote. In one of his hypochondriacs, Boswell writes, I have heard it remarked by one of whom more remarks deserve to be remembered than of any person I ever knew, that a man is often as narrow as he is prodigal for want of counting. End of footnote. When in good humour, he would talk of his own writings with a wonderful frankness and candour, and would even criticise them with the closest severity. One day, having read over one of his ramblers, Mr. Langton asked him how he liked that paper. He shook his head and answered, too wordy. At another time, when one was reading his tragedy of Irene to a company at a house in the country, he left the room, and somebody having asked him the reason of this, he replied, 
Sir, I thought it had been better. Footnote. September 1778. We began talking of Irene, and Mrs. Thrale made Dr. Johnson read some passages which I had been remarking as uncommonly applicable to the present time. He read several speeches, and told us he had not ever read so much of it before since it was first printed. I was told, wrote Sir Walter Scott, that a gentleman called Pot, or some such name, was introduced to him as a particular admirer of his. The doctor growled, and took no further notice. He admires in especial your Irene as the finest tragedy of modern times, to which the doctor replied, If Pot says so, Pot lies, and relapsed into his reverie. End of footnote. Talking of a point of delicate scrupulosity of moral conduct, he said to Mr. Langton, Men of harder minds than ours will do many things from which you and I would shrink. Yet, sir, they will perhaps do more good in life than we. But let us try to help one another. If there be a wrong twist, it may be set right. It is not probable that two people can be wrong the same way. Footnote. Scrupulosity was a word that Boswell had caught up from Johnson. Sir W. Jones wrote in 1776, You will be able to examine with the minutest scrupulosity, as Johnson would call it. Johnson describes Addison's prose as pure without scrupulosity. Swift, he says, washed himself with oriental scrupulosity. Boswell writes of scrupulosity of conscience. End of footnote. Of the preface to Capel's Shakespeare, he said, If the man would have come to me, I would have endeavoured to endow his purposes with words, for as it is, he doth gabble monstrously. Footnote. When thou didst not savage know thine own meaning but wouldst gabble like a sing most brutish i endowed thy purposes with words that made them known the tempest act one scene two end of footnote he related that he had once in a dream a contest of wit with some other person and that he was very much mortified by imagining that his opponent had the better of him now said he one may mark here the effect of sleep in weakening the power of reflection for had not my judgment failed me i should have seen that the wit of this supposed antagonist by whose superiority i felt myself depressed was as much furnished by me as that which i thought i had been uttering in my own character one evening in company an ingenious and learned gentleman read to him a letter of compliment which he had received from one of the professors of a foreign university johnson in an irritable fit thinking there was too much ostentation said 
I never receive any of these tributes of applause from abroad. One instance I recollect of a foreign publication in which mention is made of l'illustre Lockman, footnote, secretary to the British herring fishery, remarkable for an extraordinary number of occasional verses, not of eminent merit. Boswell. Lockman was known in France as the translator of Voltaire's La Henriade. Of Sir Joshua Reynolds, he said, Sir, I know no man who has passed through life with more observation than Reynolds. He repeated to Mr. Langton with great energy in the Greek our Saviour's gracious expression concerning the forgiveness of Mary Magdalene. I pistis sosazoke se purei u o aire u ai o. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. He said, The manner of this dismission is exceedingly affecting. He thus defined the difference between physical and moral truth. Physical truth is when you tell a thing as it actually is. Moral truth is when you tell a thing sincerely and precisely as it appears to you. I say, such a one walked across the street. If he really did so, I told a physical truth. If I thought so, though I should have been mistaken, I told a moral truth. Huggins, the translator of Ariosto and Mr. Thomas Wharton, in the early part of his literary life, had a dispute concerning that poet, of whom Mr. Wharton, in his observations on Spencer's Fairy Queen, gave some account, which Huggins attempted to answer with violence, and said, I will militate no longer against his nescience. Huggins was master of the subject, but wanted expression. Mr. Wharton's knowledge of it was then imperfect, but his manner lively and elegant. Footnote. Miss Burney, describing him in 1783, says, He looks unformed in his manners and awkward in his gestures. He joined not one word in the general talk. End of footnote. Johnson said, It appears to me that Huggins has ball without powder, and Wharton powder without ball. Talking of the farce of high life below stairs, he said, here is a farce which is really very diverting when you see it acted, and yet one may read it and not know that one has been reading anything at all. He used at one time to go occasionally to the green room of Drury Lane Theatre, where he was much regarded by the players, and was very easy and facetious with them. He had a very high opinion of Mrs. Clive's comic powers, and conversed more with her than with any of them. He said, Clive, sir, is a good thing to sit by. She always understands what you say. And she said of him, I love to sit by Dr. Johnson. He always entertains me. One night, when the recruiting officer was acted, he said to Mr. Holland, footnote the actor, Churchill introduces him in the Roskiad, 
next holland came with truly tragic stalk he creeps he flies a hero should not walk who had been expressing an apprehension that dr johnson would disdain the works of farquhar no sir i think farquhar a man whose writings have considerable merit his friend garrick was so busy in conducting the drama that they could not have so much intercourse as mr garrick used to profess an anxious wish that there should be Footnote. In a letter written by Johnson to a friend in 1742-43, he says, I never see Garrick. Malone. End of footnote. There might, indeed, be something in the contemptuous severity as to the merit of acting, which his old preceptor nourished in himself, that would mortify Garrick, after the great applause which he received from the audience. For though Johnson said of him, Sir, a man who has a nation to admire him every night may well be expected to be somewhat elated, yet he would treat theatrical matters with a ludicrous slight. He mentioned one evening, I met David coming off the stage dressed in a woman's riding hood when he acted in The Wonder. Footnote, the Wonder a woman keeps the secret by mrs sanlieve acted at drury lane in seventeen fourteen revived by garrick in seventeen fifty seven i came full upon him and i believe he was not pleased once he asked tom davies whom he saw dressed in a fine suit of clothes and what art thou to-night tom answered the Sane of Ross, footnote, in Macbeth, end of footnote, which, it will be recollected, is a very inconsiderable character. Oh, brave, said Johnson. Of Mr. Longley at Rochester, a gentleman of very considerable learning, whom Dr. Johnson met there, he said, My heart warms towards him. I was surprised to find in him such a nice acquaintance with the beta in the learned languages, though I was somewhat mortified that I had not so much to myself as I should have thought. Footnote. Mr. Longley was recorder of Rochester and father of Archbishop Longley. To the kindness of his granddaughter, Mrs. Newton Smart, I owe the following extract from his manuscript autobiography. Dr. Johnson and General Paoli came down to visit Mr. Langton, and I was asked to meet them, when the conversation took place mentioned by Boswell, in which Johnson gave me more credit for knowledge of the Greek meters than I deserved. There was some question about anapestics, concerning which I happen to remember what Foster used to tell us at Eton, that the whole line to the basis anapestica was considered but as one verse, however divided in the printing, and consequently the syllables at the end of each line were not common as in other metres. This observation was new to Johnson and struck him. Had he examined me farther, I fear he would have found me ignorant. Langton was a very good 
Greek scholar, much superior to Johnson, to whom, nevertheless, he paid profound deference. Sometimes, indeed, I thought more than he deserved. The next day I dined at Langton's with Johnson. I remember Lady Ross, Langton's wife, spoke of the advantage children now derived from the little books published purposely for their instruction. Johnson controverted it, asserting that at an early age it was better to gratify curiosity with wonders than to attempt planting truth before the mind was prepared to receive it, and that therefore Jack the Giant-Killer, Parisanus and Parismanus, and the seven champions of Christendom were fitter for them than Mrs. Barbold and Mrs. Trimmer. Mrs. Piozzi says, Dr. Johnson used to condemn me for putting Newbury's books into children's hands. Babies do not want, said he, to hear about babies. They like to be told of giants and castles, and of somewhat which can stretch and stimulate their little minds. When I would urge the numerous editions of Tommy Prudent or Goody Two-Shoes, remember always, said he, that the parents buy the books, and that the children never read them. End of footnote. Talking of the minuteness with which people will record the sayings of eminent persons, a story was told that when Pope was on a visit to Spence at Oxford, as they looked from the window they saw a gentleman commoner who had just come in from riding, amusing himself with whipping at a post. Pope took occasion to say, That young gentleman seems to have little to do. Mr. Beauclerc observed, Then, to be sure, Spence turned round and wrote that down, and went on to say to Johnson, Pope, sir, would have said the same of you if he had seen you distilling. Johnson, Sir, if Pope had told me of my distilling, I would have told him of his grotto. Footnote. Johnson wrote of this grotto. It may be frequently remarked of the studious and speculative that they are proud of trifles, and that their amusements seem frivolous and childish. End of footnote. He would allow no settled indulgence of idleness upon principle and always repelled every attempt to urge excuses for it. A friend one day suggested that it was not wholesome to study soon after dinner. Johnson. Ah, oh, sir, don't give way to such a fancy. At one time of my life I had taken it into my head that it was not wholesome to study between breakfast and dinner. Mr. Beauclerc one day repeated to Dr. Johnson Pope's lines, let modest foster, if he will, excel ten metropolitans in preaching well. Footnote. Dr. James Foster, the nonconformist preacher. Johnson mentions the reputation which he had gained by his proper delivery. In the Conversations of Northcote, it is stated that 
Foster first became popular from the Lord Chancellor Hardwick stopping in the porch of his chapel in the old Jewry out of a shower of rain, and thinking he might as well hear what was going on, he went in and was so well pleased that he sent all the great folks to hear him, and he was run after as much as Irving has been in our time. Dr. T. Campbell recorded in 1775 that when Mrs. Thrale quoted something from Foster's sermons, Johnson flew in a passion and said that Foster was a man of mean ability and of no original thinking. Gibbon wrote of Foster, Wonderful! A divine preferring reason to face, and more afraid of vice than of heresy? End of footnote. Then asked the doctor, why did Pope say this? Johnson, sir, he hoped it would vex somebody. End of section one.